Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we are joined by the one and only Brian Kurtz. Brian is here today because I've asked him to give us the insider secrets to being the world's greatest little league umpire. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, obviously, as you'll find out, he's extremely passionate about his volunteer umpire obligations. But today, he's here to talk about with us about direct marketing, specifically lessons learned from mailing over 1.3 billion, that's with a B, pieces of direct mail and using it to generate tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. But before you try to pigeonhole him as a one-trick pony, Brian has proven himself as a master marketer in pretty much every single channel available. For example, on top of his direct mail experience, he was also responsible for buying more than $80 million worth of direct response TV spots over a three-year period, which they used to sell more than 3 million books. He's been inducted into the Direct Marketing Association's Hall of Fame. He received its List Leader of the Year Award, and the Direct Marketing Club of New York has also recognized his life, work, and accomplishments with their famous Silver Apple. And what I love most of all about all of this is how Brian is such a phenomenal human being who really deserves the recognition of what he's done. Words cannot describe the good in the world he has contributed towards, and he is so humble about it. He's almost too humble. I'm sure that'll come across. Um, and his, his business career started as a list manager, and that's where he learned about audiences, demographics, and database marketing. Then on March 30th, 1981, he started Boardroom Inc., then known as Boardroom Reports Inc., and here he was able to work beside and learn from the great marketing masters and legends, Dick Benson, Gene Schwartz, and Marty Edelston, to name a few, among tens of hundreds of others. And for those of you listening, if you don't recognize any of those names, please write them down and look them up. That was Dick Benson, Gene Schwartz, and Marty Edelston. A lot of people on this call may not know or understand the accomplishments of these people, but a secret not too well known by others is how one of Brian's proudest moments was when Dick Benson said to him, Brian, I didn't know you before today, but frankly, I'm impressed. And he said that because Dick was fond of saying no one spends enough time on lists. And starting in the list business is exactly what gave Brian a solid foundation and the knowledge needed for the different media channels, which helped Boardroom sell millions of newsletter subscriptions and consumer books. As you'd expect, Brian is one of the most well-connected executives in direct marketing, and also, as I mentioned earlier, he's extremely passionate about his Little League Baseball umpiring. In his free time, he enjoys playing tennis, spending time with his wife and kids, is a loyal Rutgers alumni from his days in New Brunswick, New Jersey as a student. And one last accomplishment worth mentioning, but not money-related, was how in 2008, Brian was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he beat it. 
And that alone is remarkable and speaks to his dedication to expert knowledge and studying things that actually work. Brian continues to devote his time as often as possible to speaking and teaching opportunities like this one. And because not only is he a fan of the history of direct marketing, he is a huge proponent of passing the torch and legacy onto future generations. Keep an eye out for his Titans of Direct Response event, training and materials, which is how I met him myself. Brian, thank you so, so much for your time today. I appreciate it from the deepest parts of my heart. How are you doing, my friend? I'm good. You know, Daryl, that was probably the most researched bio of anyone who's ever interviewed me and that's saying a lot because i've been interviewed a lot yeah and because you obviously like you not only looked at my bio but you read my blogs and you looked at a lot of different stuff and what i find amazing about you and i've only i only got to meet you uh for the first time last september and it was someone was coming to the titans of direct response event that i was hosting and it was someone who you were coaching and this woman uh, namita who's just a wonderful woman um she was in dubai right Right, right, yep. And and she said to me, um, I really want to bring my coach. And I said, sure, you know, and who is he? And it was this guy, this guy Daryl. I said, I, I never heard of him. Um, and then, like, you came into my life, and I'm like, who? This guy's awesome. I mean, he's like, you know, he, um, you, you spent, you know, three days with us, and you were in our VIP group, and you were incredibly um Obviously, you did the kind of res- you were doing instant research then because we did twenty eight hot seats in ten and a half hours that day, if you recall, mm-hmm. and you were participating in every single one of them. So, um, I'm just really impressed that you were able to rattle off all of that stuff about me, <laughs> and actually made me sound way more interesting than I am. <laughs> no, that's the, everyone listening. This is what I'm talking about. He is way too <laughs> humble for what yeah. he's accomplished. It, no, Brian, you're a great guy, and you know that business dinner left such a huge that VIP business dinner left such a huge impact on me because you were so personal and so real in your relationships. It just makes sense that you you started with like list management and understanding groups of people because you are just so good at getting intimate with people. And you know at the dinner you went around and gave a personal introduction to everyone, and it's only fair that you get that in return because it just it makes people feel really special. Um, that night you made everyone glow. You made everyone feel like superstars. And it was. I mean, it really was an event of Titans, and it just, it was an event that I'll remember forever, and that's why I made sure to mention it at the beginning of the call, because your content is just phenomenal. I do follow your stuff. You're a great man, and it's just an honor to have you on the call, so. Thank um, you so much, and we should talk, we could talk about some of that stuff about, um, you know, that dinner that we did there, and, and what that's all about, and how people can really contribute and connect in their lives, so I know, you know, this is a little bit of jazz, but we had some questions that we wanted to cover, but I really would love to make sure your listeners uh, get some actionable things out of this call that they could put into their own lives to make make their lives more fulfilling. Yeah, no, no. We'll, we'll make, don't, trust me, I'm going to squeeze everything I can out of that. All right, good. Yeah, it's good. But how did you even, one thing I couldn't figure out, what I, I wanted to include in the bio, but... How did you even get into list management? Because it's, you know, back when you got into it, it was such an obscure thing. Like, it's not a carpenter. Like, you know, it's not one of your traditional, you know, trades. So how did how did that even come about? Yeah, it's funny. You know, that, that was like uh, I, the joke back then in 1981 was I was voted in my high school yearbook most likely to become a list manager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't – in fact, I came into the list business and someone said these guys call list brokers who recommend lists. I go – a list broker, they work on Wall Street, what's the deal with that? You know, it's like, so yeah, I didn't know anything. So uh, just quickly, um, and and there's a lesson in here too, I think. Um, When I was a senior in college, 
you know, like like most seniors in college, you know, wondering what I'm going to do with my life. And I was trying to figure out, I mean, it was a bunch of different things. One was, you know, maybe I become a professional baseball umpire. One was maybe I become a, um, um, a film critic for a newspaper because I was into movies and I was the film critic for my school paper at Rutgers. Another thing was, like everybody else, I thought maybe I'd just go to law school or, or become a CPA so that my parents would think that my education was worth something. Um, and so, you know, you're going through all these stages in your senior year. And so I remember that halfway through my senior year, I mean, I went to Rutgers, which is a suburb. It was in New Jersey, which is close to New York City. And I went into New York City and I actually started going to I actually visited some headhunters. And I said, I'm graduating, you know, in May. And this was January, and I said, I really want to have a job when I get out. And these headhunters, like, looked at me like, what? you know, you can't get a job. I can't, I can't recommend you for a job now. You're not graduating for another six months. But interestingly, you know, I, I, this, my whole life's been about serendipitous stuff. So sometimes you do something. So I was basically going to the city to try to find a job for May or June in January, which was never going to happen. And yet a particular headhunter fell in love with me. Hmm. And why would a headhunter fall in love with me? I don't know. But I went to see this guy. He had a kid about my age. He said, I think it's so, you know, not many kids come to the city in January of their senior year when they know I can't hire, I can't send them on interviews yet. Hmm. And yet you wanted to come meet me. That's so cool. And then we got to know each other. And then so when I graduated, I thought I didn't I didn't end up doing the umpire thing. I didn't end up doing the CPA or law school thing. And I said, I'm just going to get a job at a publishing company since I know how to write and I knew how to read. I was an English major. Mm-hmm. So and I am getting to the point of how I got to be into the list business. Yeah, no, no, so but it was interesting because basically I went to college. I learned how to read and write because I was an English major. And um, so when I just pounded the pavement in New York at publishing companies and just walked into one company after another, I mapped out my days and just dropped off resumes. And eventually I got a job at a play publisher. And it was a theatrical kind of company. They didn't pay me. They paid me less than $10,000 a year at the time. And I was living at home with my parents and, you know, not having a great time. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the, the block that this company was on was on 45th Street in New York, across the street from that headhunter I had gone to in January. Oh, wow. And I had stayed in touch with the headhunter, and he started sending me on interviews. And, in fact, one of them was at Playboy magazine, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I remember that one. Why do I remember that one, right? Um, so um, eventually he says to me, you know, there's this one company, Boardroom Incorporated. I, I've been sending people there. The guy who started it is an entrepreneur, Marty Edelston. And he started it in, in 1972. He's growing. He's looking for good young people. You're the kind of guy that he's just going to love. So, you know, you just see the progress of, of when you make true contributions and connections with people. They not only remember you and you differentiate yourself. Um, he was going to get me into this company because he saw some linkage with me and Marty. Mm. And so long story long, I end up with an interview at Boardroom. And it just so happens the interview is not in the editorial side because I thought I wanted to be a writer or something in publishing. But Boardroom happened to manage their mailing list in-house, mm. which is very rare. Most companies would have a mailing list that they would give to what they call a list manager to basically represent their list in the marketplace. Like Money Magazine has a list of subscribers, and some company would rep- represent the Money Magazine list to get other people to use the list in direct mail. 
So, and this is all direct mail now. This is way before right. the internet. So it just so happened that Boardroom had this in-house list management operation. And the job was to be like a clerk in that department. I was going to get a raise from about $9,500 a year to about $12,500 a year. So that was like a big deal. And I could move out of my house on that, barely. So I took this job at Boardroom and thinking I would end up on the editorial side at some point. Right. You even asked about getting put on there once, and Marty said no. He did. He did. He he basically said, you know, when, when, when a job opened up in editorial after I'd been there for a couple of years, he said, you know, Brian, I, I think you got a nose for this marketing stuff. And, you know, when the owner of the company who has sort of taken you under his wing kind of starts seeing your talent and where you th- he thinks you might be most talented, you're going to listen because at 23 years old, I'm not saying you don't know anything, but you certainly know a lot less than, you know, the guy who was starting this business. Right. So I just fell in love with that side of the business. And it wasn't just being a list manager and, and representing the boardroom list and everybody mailed the boardroom list because they were affluent executives they were lists that work for just about everybody mm. but i just loved as you said i think you hinted at it that this idea that that it was the audiences it was you know how an audience responded to an offer and my curiosity was so piqued by this business that um that's how i started getting all that you know, uh, curiosity to learn about copywriting and to learn about offers and to learn about the kind of direct mail, not only that we did to get the lists that we had to put, you know, put the names up on our list, but all the different people that used our list and to learn about all these different companies that were probably the kings of direct mail, you know, through the Mm -hmm. 70s, 80s and 90s, people like Reader's Digest and Time Magazine and and, uh, Consumer Reports and all the different catalogers and all the different fundraisers, political fundraisers. So learning about all these different areas and that everybody needed lists, everybody needed to mail, in our case, our affluent executives. And so to be exposed to all that was just incredible. And there was no turning back. Like once, you know, I didn't, I realized that I wasn't going to be a writer. I'd figure out some other ways to do my writing, which I'm doing now, actually. Mm-hmm. But it was more about being a marketing guy. And coming from the list side of things, I think you really do learn what makes people tick. And then it went into copywriting from there. I never really became a copywriter per se, but I work with probably the greatest copywriters who've ever lived. Yep. And what an experience that was. And they looked to me for my list knowledge, and it was just an, an amazing marriage of of knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, what are some of the, like, because you're right, and it's like Gary Bensavenga, who's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal, legendary copywriter. And for anyone listening to the call, if you don't understand why copywriting is so important, it's the only way, you know, now we have new technology, so you can do webinars and that. But for years, it was writing the written word was the only way you could leverage salesmanship outside of having one person in a room, whether you're doing one-on-one sales or one-to-many. You can do the phone sales as well, but you can't really leverage that in the way that you can, you know, written word. And so copy is so important in your brochures, your website, communications after people buy. I mean, copywriting is just, it really is the, it really is a, a massive leverage point in almost every business. Um, and where Brian's... I'll, I'll give you a quote, Daryl. Uh, Gary Halbert um, had this great quote. He's also one of the greatest copywriters who ever lived. <clears throat> he used to say that every, every, um, every sale, every uh, business problem can be solved with a great sales letter. Yep. And, yep. and it's not just about you know, it was about direct mail and the written word, but even today, as you as you suggest, you know, writing the webinar and writing 
the video sales letter and writing amazing email for, for marketing purposes. Um, yeah, copywriting moves the world. Even even Greg Renker that you had at your Titans event. Greg Renker is one of the partners of Guthy Renker, that uh, the largest infomercial company in the states. They've got a couple of products that do you know five hundred to seven hundred fifty million a year. And he, even he was saying every infomercial starts out as a script, right? mm-hmm. and that's oh yeah, he's a storyteller. You know, it was so amazing when my first call with him talking about TV. And we started like talking about one of the shows that was running for a cosmetic. It's for with um, Cindy Crawford, uh-huh. and you know the famous model. And uh-huh. the way that commercial is written, that info, that twenty-eight and a half commercial is written. If you read it on paper, you would say this is an ingenious script, and therefore it's a great piece of copywriting. Right. Right. Yeah, so so for the listeners, if you're not aware, that's part of what it is. And Brian, what are some of the things like because as a list manager, you would see gaps in other people's skills as a list manager, where they're falling off. And I know you gave away, um, again, just another another t- uh, feather in the cap to how well you take care of people. But at the audience, all the women, you wanted to make sure that all the women were acknowledged and made to feel special because they are a bit of a minority in the industry. And you had a special gift for all the women who came to the event. And one of them was a book on list building. And like what, you know, and I remember you said that, you know, some of it's, you know, I don't want to say outdated. I remember you gave one to Namita, but you said there's a lot of the solid fundamentals are in this book and it had helped you. And kind of what are some of those things that people have, you know, like if they're listening and they're like, all right, I need to know my audience and list building. A lot of people say they know that, but I think there's a difference between quote unquote knowing and like the real experience. And you obviously have that touch. So kind of what is a list to you or what is an audience or, you know, like, I don't know if I can formulate the question properly, but I want to get at like, what, how do you look at a list differently than the average list broker? Who's just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think well, I look at it like some list brokers used to look at it. And the book you're referring to is by Rose Harper, uh, who was sort of like, uh, kind of the one, like real matriarch in the, in the list business. Uh, who passed away, who I would have had speak at Titans had she been around. And the other book I gave away at Titans was uh, Secret Successful Direct Mail by Dick Benson, who was also one of the greats in direct mail. And um, but, but Rose Harper was actually a list expert. And one of the basic things, and it's funny, as, as I'm doing consulting now, um, and I, I, I ask people whether they're doing online marketing or offline marketing, and I say, do you understand the concept of RFM? Right. Um, three letters, RFM. Recency, and frequency, monetary value. That's correct. And, and you know, maybe a lot of your listeners know what those what that is. But, you know, anytime you look at a list, you need to look at it in terms of recency, frequency, and monetary value. So recency, the concept being that um, someone who bought in the last three months is always worth more than someone who bought six months ago or a year ago, which is counterintuitive to someone who's new to the business because they say, well, if they just bought, then they've used up all their money and they're not going to buy again. Right. <laughs> it's just the opposite. Um, you know, and I, I said that kind of tongue in cheek, but I, I, I want to get the point across that someone who buys will buy again and, mm-hmm. and making sure that you can select by recency is very, very important, but then frequency is important. So it's not just when they ordered, but how often they ordered. So the icing on the cake select on most lists was called multi-buyers. Mm. And they're people who bought more than one product. And so the idea of getting a multi-buyer who bought in the last three months their most recent product, now you got two things going for you on that selection. I'm being very basic here. Yeah, no, that's uh, good, though. It's very But good. then the third thing, obviously, is monetary, how much they spend. And that was always an interesting one to me because when you're in the in the information business as opposed to the catalog business, 
it, it may be actually less important than recency and frequency, whereas if you're in the catalog business, it may be more important. Mm. For example, you know, someone who spends a lot of money in, on a particular type of product in a catalog is probably someone is going to be worth a lot more if you're also selling product. But if you're selling an information product like a book or a newsletter, what they spent might be far less important than the niche area that they're involved in and whether they're actually are more recent or frequent uh, than they are the price of it. Um, for example, if you had a financial product, the fact that someone spent you know $20 on a, on a magazine subscription might be worth more than someone who might have spent more money on something that was more distant um, in a different subject area. Right. So, but, but putting those three things together and then, you know, it gets way more sophisticated than that when you start selecting from these huge databases of names where the, the computer and, and statistical programs actually do the selection for you. They actually, you know, can rank names on a database based on recency, based on frequency, based on monetary value, and based on other data like demographics and psychographics. So, you know, the, the lesson for the callers here, because I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people on this call might have very small lists or they, or they might have mid-sized lists. And the thing I always like to say is that, you know, the list of, of 900 or 9,000 needs to be looked at the same as a list of 9 million in that, you want to have different messaging to different segments of your list. Hmm. And that's where the copywriting and the list both get married together. And I'm finding that the more I've been doing consulting with people in the online world, the more this aspect, you know, this idea is coming up as something that's really, really important hmm. to figure out how to, to look at audiences um, in different ways with different messaging. So you can see that the list is also related to the to the copy and to the offer that you make. Right. So you have a different offer for someone who hasn't bought in six months versus someone who's bought in the last 30 days? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's another rule of thumb in the list business that your ex-buyers or your previous customers is always going to be your best list. Right. So that concept could be taken into almost any business. So someone who was a subscriber to whatever you do and they lapse their subscription. Usually they lapse because of time or money. But to get them back in, you don't have to resell the product in the same way as if it was someone who was in there for the first time. Right. So when we sell to our ex-buyers, there's much more of we want you back and you're already part of my family as opposed to I'm trying to you know get you into my family for the first time. Right. Right, right. So if this were to be like, say, instead of trying to sell product, I'm just trying to get someone to go with me to the movies. The concept is the same, that if I wanted to get people to go with me, if I called up a buddy who went with me to the movies last week, it'd be more likely he would be able to come with me versus someone that went with me to the movies a year ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, selling them on it, assuming you had a good time and, you know, you got to find out what the objections were, like any good salesperson, right? Mm -hmm. So the objection of why they no longer want to come or to the movies or why they no longer want to subscribe to your newsletter or why they no longer own your product or are active in your product or what you do now becomes the way that you have to resell them uh, because you have to sell them based on those objections. Whereas the new person, you're going to learn a lot from new prospecting as to what you think are the biggest benefits are of your product 
to bring someone into the fold for the first time. Right. And so, it, you know, and, and, and that's why testing is so important. I mean, there's no one answer to any of these things. And it's why you test different copy approaches to different audiences. And it's why you test all the different segments of your list differently. That's so powerful. I already know. And it was such an aha moment for me when I was in boardroom's office. And I remember asking that. Um, I was talking to some of the people and they were just saying, of all the data points that you track, RFM is the most valuable. And you guys have millions of customers. And that just blew my mind because it's almost like you said, like you have to treat a list of 900 the same as you would a list of nine 900,000. Um, and that's just really, really, really awe-inspiring to me. Now, what were kind of some of the major challenges, I guess, that you had in your career with Boardroom? I mean, now you've, you're, you're launching your own thing. You're stepping out in the foray, and people are kind of fighting over you. We were kind of laughing about that before. Um, now that you're, you've got more free time, you know, were there any kind of growing pains or big challenges in that? I mean, in your evolution as a marketer yourself and in learning the business and in learning direct mail and then learning how to apply it to the other channels, what were kind of some of your biggest challenges in that? Yeah, I think there's, I always think in terms of either, I don't know if it's light bulbs or turning points, but, um, you know, and, and usually they, you know, and, and I did a presentation recently, um, which I'm going to expand on some more, but the idea that, you know, those turning point or light bulbs, I started trying to uh, pinpoint them. And, you know, one of them, I, as I recall, was the idea that I always wanted to, you mentioned it before in my bio, that I always wanted to sell our products on TV. I always felt that it was such a big medium that we were not tapped into. And early in my career, I, I couldn't figure out a way to get into TV because back in the early to mid-1980s, you know, most TV was one-minute and two-minute commercials. And to sell a product like ours, which was not that well-known, whether it was our books or our newsletters, it wasn't like selling you know, something that was a well-known brand and the publications that could sell on TV, like Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine, had an easier time of it because people knew what it was, and you can do it in one or two minutes. And so when the infomercial came about, the 28-and-a-half-minute um, show in the late 1980s that became available, I, I swore to myself that I was going to figure out a way to get into that business. So in that respect, it was a huge challenge from the mid to late 1980s when infomercials came on on the scene and actually having our first successful infomercial, which didn't happen until, believe it or not, 2005. Wow. And I just didn't figure it out until then. I, I tried so many different ways. So I didn't spend a lot of money chasing it. I just spent a lot of, a lot of anxiety chase, chasing it, <laughs> figuring out how to do it. And it's a longer story, which I don't want to go into, and, and I, I tell it, I've told it in, in other interviews, and I think I even told it in one of my blogs. Um, you know, I said how insomnia led to a $200 million franchise. <laughs> but, you know, you got to have that, that moment, you know, that kind of triggers it. But you also have to have that dream. And so I think that whenever I was challenged with something, I want to be on TV was the challenge, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it and writing to myself about it and until eventually, you know, it doesn't come to you by magic, but it comes to you by all the different other work you do. And I believe in serendipitous mm. things like that. Now, you said you were writing to yourself. Is that a habit that you've developed over time? Yeah, I didn't do it as much early in my career, and I probably 
would have been better off. But, you know, journaling, I think, is so important. Uh, being able to, you know, even if it's a journal that has prompts, you know, your things you're most grateful for when you get up in the morning and, you know, things that are wins every day at night and, uh, you know, training yourself to think of your life in terms of gratefulness and, wow. and wins is something that I've really developed over time. And I guess back then I was still doing it in a different way uh, in that I was journaling and I was writing to myself and I was kind of keeping track of all the potential ideas. I mean, another one, another big challenge was, you know, when most of our books that sold the best back then were books that were greatest hits of our newsletters. And so we didn't have to, you know, go out and create very much. It was just sort of rehashing the editorial. And I realized we were going to run out of editorials. So that was one of those, you know, light bulb moments that said, how are we going to increase our reach with more content? And that led to a whole program where I started buying the rights to outside books. But that took a long time to get to. That's a great point to bring up because this is a conversation that's come up a couple of times recently um, in other discussions and other interviews. It's, you know, do you take one product and do you try to take it around the world or do you, you know, do you go inch wide, mile deep and try to, you know, have a bigger back end? And you kind of just started touching on that. Like you've got this newsletter, the subscription, but it's a monthly newsletter. And, you know, and you do your, your best selling products are the summer of the the best of that, but that's a finite resource. So do you just try to sell the best of to a larger audience? Like how you, your solution was to license other content? Was that, is that true? Yeah. So, so it was, the answer is both. I mean, you know, we were able to go pretty deep with, with the content that we already had. And, but I, but to bring in new people into the fold with a new product and to get into different niches it was going to be impossible to do that without looking beyond our four walls. Mm. So you both, and, and I guess, I guess in the online world today, we talk about, you know, what are the, what are the new products that we're all going to do to be the new front end products? And what are we going to do on the back end um, to go deeper with the products that we develop that seem to resonate the most with our audience? And you have to do both. Now, I do know that a lot of the places where I hang out in the mastermind groups and the people I like to hang out with, they would much rather go a mile deep and, and an inch or two wide um, as opposed to going a mile wide. And I think, that, I think that that's been a prescription for the business models that have had the most success. And every time I think about going too wide in whatever I do or when I'm consulting to someone who is not niching down enough, I kind of remember some of the challenges that we had at Boardroom where we were not niching down enough and we were too wide. And I think if we had, you know, we had some great successes with going wide. I mean, mm-hmm. bottom line personal at one point, I mean, you know, it was always close to a half a million subscribers, which is a really big subscription list at, mm-hmm. you know, $39 subscription. But, you know, there are a lot of people who we were competing with that were very happy with 100,000 subscribers at, you know, hundreds of dollars, which was a whole different model in the newsletter business. So I, I think that going forward, I think, I think being in it. So, so again, to go back to your question, you know, one of the big challenges that I always faced was, you know, our products were a mile wide and an inch deep. How did we figure out ways to go a mile deep? Mm. And it was a big challenge. And, 
we didn't always meet it, and you know we had a lot of failures doing that. But that's how you get to your successes. Yeah, that's actually perfect for because I have a, qu- a couple of questions I want to ask. Because you know, when you decide to scale something to the max, because something that I don't know if a lot of people are willing to confess, but a lot of marketing fails. If, if you're tracking your results, the vast majority of what you do will fail. But the winners are what make it worthwhile. And when you decide to scale something to the max, well, you know, direct marketing is beautiful that way because. The, the, the mass desire and what, what Gene Schwartz talks about in the great book, Breakthrough Advertising, um, I think the audience tells you when you're going to scale because in direct marketing, you start with a test quantity and you pyramid, as we say, from that into not to huge quantities but to the next sort of next level of lists or the next level of audience. And as you fine-tune both the audiences you can go after and the messaging that you can do through your copy and offer, um, I think you're going to, the scaling, this will sound kind of corny, but the scaling sort of comes to you as opposed to you forcing the scaling. You know, you can't force a product on an audience. You have to really sell benefits. You have to really give people um something that they they really need and some and 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 gene schwartz talks about the, all the different levels you know some people know they want it but they don't know they need it or they they you know they they know they need it but you know they you need to make it a, available in a way that makes it accessible and there's so many different angles to this but there's no one thing that says now it's time to scale but i think i i love letting my audience tell me and that's why we also did a lot of surveying of, of our audience, you know, the idea of, of making sure that, you know, you don't go down avenues with your product until your audience tells you that they want it. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And there are very sophisticated ways to do that online these days, which I'm very impressed with. Yeah, no, there definitely are. Um, we had a guest, Ryan uh, Levesque. Who yeah, I love what Ryan does. Yeah, yeah, that's state of the art. And then uh, I have an interview with Glenn Livingston, his mentor, who's coming up soon as well. Glenn's a great guy. So survey is phenomenal. And you even did that. The t- I was so impressed by that because you did that like end of day one or something at the Titans event. You put, had everyone, a little slip of paper, just put their feedback, and you, you guys responded. And that was amazing. Like, the, I mean, the food was already phenomenal you know but i think there was a temperature issue and whatever but you just asked everyone and then you fixed it and that's part of why everyone loved the event so much is because they came they enjoyed it they had a couple of things that you know maybe weren't the most comfortable and then you fixed it or you talked about it on stage right. and so there was right. no elephant in the room and that just people feel heard they feel catered for i mean that's just phenomenal so when you talk about letting the audience tell you in a scale i mean what does that mean when when does it go to 4000 pieces of mail in a week like how how does the audience tell you that you know i mean i i I'll tell you, again the beauty of direct marketing is that everything's measurable so i really would never scale on something that you know isn't working and that sounds kind of silly to say it even like that but um but I also don't give up so quickly. So one of the examples I think I give in my light bulb speech is when we made the decision to, you know, we did some research and there was a lot of evidence out there that the United States is basically, there's, there's a diabetes epidemic in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's not just diabetes, but it's pre-diabetes and how we eat and how, you know, we're kind of killing ourselves. Yep. And I remember... Um, the conversation with my partners at the time was, you know, I don't even want to survey 
our audience whether they want a book on diabetes. We know they need a, di a book on diabetes. So what we did was we needed to come up with the right messaging for such a book. And it was an amazing experience to not force a product on an audience, but because we were, we, and again, this was something that Gene Schwartz taught me, that if you understand what's going on in the world, and Gene was a voracious reader, and that's what made him a great copywriter, he always knew where the needs were in the world because he read everything. I mean, he read the National Enquirer, and he read Charles Dickens, and he read, you know, all the current novels, and he read, you know, all the top, you know, nonfiction books, and he just had a sense of what people needed, what they wanted. And I was really proud of ourselves that, you know, in the case of this, this diabetes book, we recognized something that we knew that, and we knew we wouldn't give up if the first test didn't work. And that's the other thing about direct marketing is that, you know, you can walk away after the first test when it doesn't work, but you also could, you know, keep your resiliency because you understand how big the universe is for that particular offer, for that particular interest area, for that particular problem, for that particular thing that needs addressing in the world. And so that was a really great lesson in when to sort of, what's, what, I was going to say when to break the rules. There's a great Picasso quote, you know, um, you know, you follow the rules like a pro so you can break the rules like a master. I like that. I think that's the quote. I'm close. I'm, 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 I may be. I'm, I'm close. You said it well. <laughs> it's not. You said it well. That was but that's the concept. I mean, you know, the idea that we've been doing direct marketing for so many years and we understood how to test and how to roll out and how to pyramid, as they say, and how to decide when to scale, as you, using your word. Um, but we also knew the signs of what things we needed to notice, you know, what... You know, for example, we would do things like we would mail a small universe of names and we'd see that the women who responded were a much higher percentage than the men. And then we decided to change one of the copy approaches for women only and then started selecting lists of women only and started moving to where, you know, the product should be going. That, that wasn't diabetes. That was a different product. Right. But we didn't know that that it was a product that was going to be as gender. Biased. We thought it was going to be a gender neutral product and it wasn't. Right. And so we let the market tell us that. And then we were able to scale into the female market on that product, but not necessarily across the board. Yeah. That's a great example. So you put it out there and you know, we did an interview with the Max Carey, who's a phenomenal individual such as yourself. And he was talking about that. Most people, they just launch a business and then it either fails or flops, but they don't actually invest the time, the eight to 18 months to, to dial it in to, you know, almost like those old school radios. We had to turn the knob to get a clearer radio signal. You throw it and that's almost what you're describing. You did your research, you put your best foot forward, you launch it out there. And then based on analyzing, like follow, that was, on your blog follow the money following the money would show you when you said so eloquently letting the audience tell you told you that you needed to almost specialize your copy and even your product for the female market and roll this out is there any other examples do you have another example of like a quick quick uh, campaign that you kind of rolled out and quickly were able to scale based on some feedback and just you know just following the money so to speak um, you know, the TV thing, we were, were able to scale pretty quickly. Like what happened with that was interesting because, um, we again broke some rules, but they made sense because in the infomercial business, we were, it, it, even back then, most of the infomercials were written and 
uh, devised by a certain formula where you would do seven minutes of of selling and then you would have a call to action of some sort uh-huh. then another seven minutes and then another call to action then another seven minutes and then like the you know the, the full-blown offer again so you'd have the offer would come up it's sort of like on an online offer you know having having the first you know link to the sales page above the fold or whether you should have it just below you know whatever uh-huh. whatever your strategy might be as to when you start selling and in this particular case, we had a we had to build something because it was a book and it was a series of premiums, you know, smaller books. And we also wanted to build the case because no one knew our brand and didn't understand that we had all these doctors who were being quoted in the book. So what we did was we kind of broke a big rule and said, you know, we are going to go 25 minutes out of 28 and a half and not offer the call to action for the first time until we were maybe 24, 25 minutes in because we really wanted to build the case for both the offer and, you know, the the sales message uh-huh. and the content. And it was kind of a breakthrough format. And then because we understood that that was a format that, was good, that worked for that type of a product, we were able to get three out of four successes on TV um, in our first four shows Whereas most people said that you'd be one out of 15 or one out of 20 infomercials would work. So I think, you know, so that was one where the audience was going to, I mean, we, we had an inkling about it. I mean, and we were ready. We were kind of ready to go to a more formulaic approach if we had to, because uh-huh. we weren't going to give up. We thought we had a good product. We thought we wanted to do an infomercial. So we might have done something with an earlier call to action if that didn't work. You know, that was a really interesting, and the audience really did tell us that there was an incredible appetite for building and building to the crescendo as opposed to, you know, three crescendos, so to speak, Mm. um, if there is such a thing, because I don't know if you can have more. (laughs) Um, But I think that, um, I mean, that's one that comes to mind right away. I think that, you know, seeing different, um, you know, copy approaches where, I remember there was some some covers of some or some outer envelopes where we kind of focused in on on more specificity where it was, you know, the 10 cent cholesterol cure or the the lunchtime facelift or whatever. It was a whole series of kind of not not that it's easy, but it's simple for people and that, you know, you kind of put some specificity on it. And that was just a theme that ran throughout so many other things that we did. So we were able to scale from one product to another without ripping off the copy from one product to another, but, you know, using kind of that general approach. So they're just, you know, you you kind of follow. One of my mentors, Adolf Auerbacher, had a great quote. He said, always follow the anecdotal evidence. And I just, I kind of still live by that. Hmm. You know, there's... There's so much evidence out there, and you just have to listen for the clues. You know, following the anecdotal evidence is such a a cool thing because you're kind of watching someone else maybe not perfect the model but do something within a model. And, you know, frankly, you know, some people are – like I thought we were inventing something with the the infomercials we did. I thought we were inventing something with some of the direct mail we've done over the years. And in a lot of ways, we were just sort of perfecting a model that was – kind of a variation on something we had seen and you know those are usually the biggest things 
the biggest successes that in my career anyway. Now, were there any of those campaigns that you thought would have done well or, you know, that you thought it would scale, but it but it didn't deserve our time. We talk about direct marketing and how you know it's measurable and therefore you can track your numbers and as long as you're profitable, you can feel confident scaling. But were there any time, is there is there any case where you, you can't trust your own numbers or what do you do if you have you know inaccurate data or you're not sure like how to, because a lot of people, you know, direct mail is pretty, it's, it can be really easy to trace your results. Um, coupons and you know department numbers and all sorts of things, but online it can get convoluted for people. They don't know where a lot of their business is coming from. And you know, for anyone listening, the less like the history of direct mail is such a great teacher for how to use online marketing. It's where I got a lot of my own education because it's the same principles. It's just applied digitally, and it, you know, and, and and in some ways it's more robust. And, and you know, here's a really great tip I've heard, and Brian, maybe you can chime in on this. I've heard people testing sales letters online first because it's so easy to get traffic and eyeballs and so easy to make changes and then they take their proven letters and they drop those in the mail um have you ever heard of that happening yeah there's a, there was a lot there Daryl. so i'll start with the end of that yes the answer is yes i mean we've actually done surveys for new products online and we're able to move them into direct mail um with some confidence not always but usually mm. um i think testing copy online that can eventually be used in print in direct mail in TV is also doable because online is a lot cheaper. So, you know, the thing is, human beings are human beings. And so, you know, what makes people move and what makes people vibrate is is somewhat universal. I mean, that's why Breakthrough Advertising is still an amazing book, even though it was written in 1966, mm-hmm. because human nature hasn't changed. Yep. And and it was, the, it was the same way before 1966 as well. So... That the online to offline testing methodology, very, very useful, very, very important, and it does it, it, it is doable. But your whole thing about all your questions about measurability, very, very important. Um, I don't think there's any excuse for anybody, no matter what your medium, to not track your results. Now, you are right that not knowing where the orders are coming from, this was a discussion that we had at Titans with, with uh with Greg Ranker about it, what, what they call attribution. Right. And, you know, they're running an infomercial and they don't get a lot of orders, but then all of a sudden more people come to the kiosks for Proactive, which is the product that was being sold on the infomercial. And how would you track that traffic to an infomercial? And so they're trying to devise all sorts of sophisticated ways to kind of figure out where people are coming from and whether the media that you're buying is paying for itself. But I will tell you this, that in direct mail, because it was so expensive, you had to track everything down to, to the penny almost. Uh, whereas in online, you can get away with a lot more mistakes uh, because how cheap the media is for the most part. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a slave to your numbers. Dick Benson had a great quote, you know, you have to believe your numbers, it's all you got. Um, but then make sure, and I've, I've blogged about this quite a bit, make sure that the numbers you have are statistically significant. Mm-hmm. I did a blog somewhat recently about I was doing an online launch at one point, and someone was doing like, you know, um, kind of on-the-fly creative testing. And so two two emails went out at the same time to a particular audience, and it was about a $100 product, and someone said, look, on one version of the sales letter, I got 12 orders, and one got eight, so it looks like we have a winner, 
And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? You know, and I'm not even a math guy. I mean, I am. I, I, I rely on other people for that. But, you know, you just call the new what they call a control, which would be the winner, based on 12 orders over eight, when A, the whole thing hasn't played out yet, and B, 12 orders over eight on a $100 offer is not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, there's not a, a quick answer to what you said, but I, 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 would, I would encourage everybody um, to really make sure that they track everything, everything, everything that they do and try to attribute it to whatever the media that you're spending money on, because that's where you tend to you're going to lose money um, if you're if you're not tracking properly. And you know if your entire campaign includes some things that aren't that expensive, and it looks like the total campaign is doing well, you know I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying try as hard as you can right. to try to attribute to each medium on its own and make sure that at least it stands up. I learned of a guy who was doing a lot of Facebook advertising and was having a hard time selling what he was doing to, to some online marketers because if you had a low-ticket offer, even if Facebook advertising was fairly cheap, they weren't getting their money back on that first order, and they, and they certainly weren't tracking, um, they weren't tracking anything. Um, I apologize for my phone ringing. Oh, that's okay. So, so I'm, I'm de I, de I definitely think that that it's it's just critically important for that you know. The, so this online uh, guy was trying to prove that you know you can actually pay for Facebook advertising and make it pay out, and that you have to look at the lifetime value of the customer, which is you know something that I'm sure mm -hmm. some of your other speakers have talked about. I know Ryan Levesque talks about this. So. Um, you know, you don't want to just take what, are, what you spend in media and decide whether it's going to work or not going to work based on that first order. So that's the other piece of this when tracking and, and making sure that everything that you're doing is paying out. Yeah, you need to know the lifetime order because marketing can be really expensive and it can be so hard to make your money back uh, in some instances on your first sale. And even if you do have something that's selling well, when you try to scale and roll it out, you know your numbers are probably going to flatline and that product will not continue to produce the ROI that it has. And so it really you're just buying customers and then it's all about having a back end. And then we talk about the RFM analysis and treating and, and segmenting people and communicating them differently. That that's where you can get the highest leverage ROI, right? Because exactly. you're spending your marketing dollars where you know it's going to be sales. And something that we haven't mentioned, and if someone's really new to this, you know, please like please listen to this call a couple of times. Brian's dropping some amazing stuff. But you can, you know, we've talked about tracking to the penny, but you can almost predict to the penny what you're going to generate as well, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that you know what's interesting in direct mail because we, we we do very sophisticated modeling. Um, that we do these things called gains charts when we're mailing millions of names, and we actually can really predict the lifts and response you can get from different audiences. And I'm not saying you can do that as readily on small universes online, but you know, I know some online marketers that have really started spending so much time with their data that they're making predictions that are pretty accurate on what their expectation is on a launch and what they need to do to get, you know, X amount and how many times they think they need to mail it and what they need to do to get to put it over the top. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the, one of the beauties, though, that, that I'm sure, uh, you know, I, I sound like, you know, the old man here, but 
I, I think when I when I see marketers today, the the ability to keep giving away more content as you move through the funnel or as you move through the sales cycle is so exciting when you think about it. You know, in 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 the old days of direct mail, you know, you really couldn't give away all that content without a sales message embedded because of the cost of postage and printing and all that. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm just fascinated with how um, nimble uh, people are, marketers are today, uh, and and what they're willing to give away for free in order to get that sale at the end and do it really professionally um, with tremendous dexterity. I just love it. Very well said. No, I think you're right. I, in some ways, though, some people are lazy because that's why, I th- one, that's why you, what you bring to the table is so valuable and why I encourage everyone on this call to listen, to look up the history of direct mail and to learn from it because, you know, that's one of the things I got. We mentioned a mutual friend, Ken McCarthy. Um, we actually have an interview with him already released, the godfather of internet marketing. Anyone who's an internet marketer should definitely listen to that call. Um, but, you know, that's one of the most powerful things I got from Ken was his ability to translate direct mail over to the online world and describe it in those terms. Because you look at a lot of people today and they do, they they don't understand the power that they wield. You know, like you can target people on Facebook or even on Google down to like the thought that they're having. Like, you know, to, mm-hmm. to like, like just with insane detail, you can target people. You can target left-handed blonde women that only know how to hop on their left foot. Like, you know, like you can just, it's crazy how, how, how easy it is to access those people and at such a low, low cost. Um, you know, it's it, the internet. It's the most efficient, but the least effective, right? Well, yeah, because I think that you have to don't get fooled into thinking because it's cheap that every time you mail somebody inexpensively, email somebody inexpensively, that there's not a cost to that beyond the seventy-five cents a thousand. Right. Because you know, there's a theory. Gordon Grossman, another one of my mentors, who was a uh, guy who built the Reader's Digest in the 1960s and kind of invented sweepstakes. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of people owe him a debt of gratitude. Uh-huh. Um, but he always used to say, you know, every time you mail, and this was this was back in direct mail, but the same is true today. Every time you mail to somebody or you contact somebody, you could be taking away a response from a future, a future offer that you have if you're not um, addressing them in the right way. I mean, I heard, I heard a horror story... Um, just to bring it home, you know, there's there's a guy had a list that was a very spiritual kind of list, and he was selling spiritual products. He was an affiliate for other spiritual products, and one day he decided to do an affiliate deal with a guy who had an offer um, to sell um, an investment product, um, and it's a, it's it's not congruent, it, it, you know, it's not it, it's not congruent, uh-huh. and so this audience was like, wait a minute. You know, we're by by their own admission, they've already told you they're kind of woo woo. Right. You know, they're only they're not interested in spiritual stuff. They only expect you to sell them spiritual stuff right. or to talk about it. And now you just sold them something that was totally out of left field. Right. And so they might have sold a few of the financial product, but he had more unsubscribes to that offer than he would for any offer. And you now might have taken a lot of people who didn't unsubscribe to not be as receptive or open next time when you send them the spiritual product again. Right, right. I, I'm giving you an extreme example, but it's but the examples are all over the place in terms of, you know, every time I, I think the, the 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 saying goes that in direct mail, 
every piece of direct mail had to sell something because we were paying so much. Right. In email and online marketing, every piece of promotion must achieve something. Right. And and if it's not going to do, if it's not serving a purpose, except to just sell something that might not be congruent, be careful because your list is is going to turn on you. That's awesome. No, that's so true because exactly because I mean it's so easy to click and, and make people disappear. That's the other part of it with the online. Yeah. So with direct mail, you can just keep mailing them uh, <laughs> to a certain point. But um, no, I think that's really good because that's where and that's where I think where. I think you really have had your advantage in coming from the list perspective and studying the people and just the human touch that you always brought that just impressed me so much when I was at the direct response. Like oh, you just were you. such a great role model, not just the survey you did trying to like acknowledge all the women you built so much goodwill. Well, actually we gave away, I, I spent $50,000 just on the giveaways at that event, which I was so proud of. And I made jokes about it. If you remember, cause mm. a lot of people, they had to like, you know, ship the stuff back Right, right. and they were actually complaining about me giving them too many good stuff. Good- <laughs> things to take home you know um, i'm in canada now i shipped all that stuff to can to california and i've shipped to canada it's actually upstairs in my living room um i was just going through it you're right it's there's like five of these well four of these massive binders and um it, it was great though no but you're right you over delivered so much people were like begging you to stop <laughs> but over delivery over delivery is actually um a kind of a a tenant of direct marketing you know the idea that you always give the customer more than they ever would have expected, and that's true. If you're selling a subscription to a magazine, give them a give them a free phone or give them a free whatever. You know, the old Sports Illustrated. You know, you get a football phone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, everything. You know, how many premiums? How many bonuses am I going to give you when you buy the initial product? When when I you know uh, when you're doing anything. So you know, over delivery will never go out of style. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what you do, whether it's online, offline, whether you're a solo entrepreneur or whether you're in a big corporate environment, um, you know, that's something that is such a great marketing lesson that, mm. you know, in, in terms of over-delivering. Yeah, I, I agree. You definitely set a great a great example. I, I want to be respectful of your times, but there are two things I wanted to ask you. One is just what I want to ask you about the habits that you like that the most successful marketers and business people you know of have had, you know, I read an interesting article earlier today, actually, about how average people, you know, successful people, you know, they only sleep an average of six hours a night and stuff like that. What would you say are the kind of the habits if someone was to try to like change their behavior, they wanted to try to emulate success as close as possible. Is there anything that you learned over the years that you feel like you already mentioned journaling? We talked about testing, you know, over delivering, uh, segmenting your list. Is there any other ones that come to mind as far as like a habit that you should have as a business owner or as a marketer to be successful? I think that a lot of people are trying to teach me how to respect my own time. Um, and you know, it's funny. I mean, you just said it, and I'm, I could sit on the phone with you for hours. You're a good, you're such a good guy, and you know, I know that you'll keep asking good questions. And but I mean, when you're when you're like, um, you know, this idea that overload doesn't serve anyone, and being in overload and trying to serve somebody is kind of a disservice to them. And so, you know, the there are people that you know take their whole day, and basically their whole day is in five minute segments, and I'll give you you know, four segments, which means you get 20 minutes. Um, and I don't think you have to be as religious as that to it, but I think that really, um, you know, prioritizing, figuring out what's, you know, what's the most important thing to do today, 
Um, you know, I don't do it every day, and that's when I get lost. You know, putting the five things that I want to accomplish today um, at the beginning of the day. Um, usually, I separate my business and personal. So, you know, one thing I'll have my list of my top business things I want to get done today, and my top personal things I want to get done today. Um, I mean, everybody has their own methodology for that, but I think that really respecting your own time and giving yourself kind of permission to be a little ruthless with your time. And I'm going to have to learn how to do that better. So that's probably the one that popped into my head first and foremost. Mm. I think also just the whole concept, and I mentioned it before, of, of gratefulness, that I think that, you know, grateful for every day you're above ground and, and grateful for, you know, the people in your life. And, you know, as you get sort of stressed out and as you start not being you know, being agitated or not being pleasant to people, I think the world will end up turning on you. I, I just, I don't want to be too woo-woo about this, but mm-hmm. I think, I think karma's a bitch. And, <laughs> and so I think that if you put out, and, and I learned this in a bunch of different lessons over the last bunch of years, that, you know, when you're not for the success of others, if you're not for the success of others, you are absolutely going to get ill. You will physically get ill. There's a, there's a Brazilian writer who I started reading recently. His name is uh, Norberto Kepi, N-O-R-B-E-R-T-O, Kepi, K-E-P-P-E. And um, he has a book called The Origin of Illness. And it really is all about envy and how envy co- makes you ill. So that the concept would be that if you got on the phone today, Daryl, and told me that you're doing these podcasts and it's kind of change your life and you know i can't you know whatever whatever the all the good news about daryl and if i spent a moment thinking of being envious of oh i wish i had a podcast i wish i was more like daryl i wish i could do what he's doing that is a prescription for illness whereas the opposite of i'm uh, going grateful and saying and I've, i've written about this in one of my blogs recently that you know, if I'm grateful, like, holy moly, Daryl is an expert in podcasts now. He's going to get better and better at it. He's going to interview all of these superstars. I'm so lucky to being being interviewed by him. I'm grateful to be interviewed by him. And maybe if I ever want to do a podcast, he'll teach me how to do it. Or maybe I can bring him some other great people to be on his podcast who will then be on my future podcast, or they might be a guest speaker at one of my events. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just dreaming here about, and it's not all about that I have to get something for something. It's not all about, right. you know, that, that if I do you a favor, you do me a favor. This, that's not what this is about. But it's about really being grateful for the people in your life and their expertise, what they do, how they share it, how they share it with you, and how you learn from it, instead of being envious. Mm-hmm. And so... Whenever I go to envy, and, and we all do, I mean, it's human nature, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you hear about someone, oh, they just did a $2 million launch, right. you know? If you go to, you know, your, nat- your, your natural response is going to be to be envious. Most entrepreneurs are going to say, wow, how did he build a $10 million business when I can't build right. a $1 million business? But go to gratefulness first. The fact that you would know that person, that they could help you with some advice on things that you might be doing. Get in a mastermind group with them. Um, mm-hmm. That's gratefulness over envy. And I think that that's one of those concepts that's been around for a long time. But it's one that 
it's one that's really been hitting home for me. And you have to wish people well, even if you don't like them, too. Mm. You know, there are people in your life that maybe were mean to you or they did you wrong in some way. But all of that is victim language, right? I mean, and anything that, where you make yourself the victim is probably not going to get you to get to the next step, yeah. you know, in, in your own growth and your own achievements. And it's going to hold you back. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Brian, my only last question, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Huh. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think, um, you know, a question that, um, I, I don't get asked that often, but I kind of, it's kind of, for me, it's a, it's a potential moose on the table that I want to dispel as quickly as possible. And it's that, you know, the fact that, you know, I use, I use T-Rex the dinosaur, as you know, part of my email address, and I, I don't, I, I just don't see myself as a dinosaur, and yet I do, um, I do think that knowing the eternal, and you kind of hinted at this, knowing the eternal truths of direct response marketing that I've experienced, and bringing them forward, is I feel like that's my life mission. So maybe the question could have been, not that it would have been a better question than any one that you asked me already. Could have been something like, um, you know, what do you really, like, what do you want to do when you grow up, Brian? I mean, you've, you know, you've had a pretty good career, and you know, you just left the company after being there for thirty-four years, um, going out on your own. And as I think about it, and I just wrote about it this past week, because I, I, I've been thinking long and hard about it, because I want to make a bigger difference. I don't want to make less of a difference. And when you don't have a big company behind you, sometimes it's harder to do that. But Having impact in the world is really about, you know, who you're going to surround yourself with. And what's the old expression I, that, you know, you're, you're kind of the, the, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with? That's correct. And so I've got to continue to just spend time with, you know, people that are going to make, make me play a bigger game and, and create a bigger impact. So I guess the question could have been, you know, what makes you qualified to be relevant to marketing today based on the fact that, you know, you spent most of your career in the direct mail world and in a not in an offline world and you've only learned the online world along with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the answer to that question that I, I to try to figure out what those things will mesh with each other, uh, kind of the old and the new and to create something really special. So I don't know. That was a long-winded way of saying, you know, justify, you know, justify yourself, Grandpa. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, and I'm not a grandpa by any means. My kids would have to have a date first for that. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm, I've been around, so I have to make sure that I stay really relevant. So I, I need to stay on top of what's going on in the world and, and be around people like you. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot to be exchanged between the two because, you know, I think where a lot of people go astray is thinking that it's all online, and that's so dangerous, just relying on any one media, um, especially one that you can get shut down so easily. Uh, yeah, online. I think that that's – I mean, in my, the mastermind group that I want to put together, um, you know, because there are so many mastermind groups, and they all do different things. And I think the one area that I'm really excited about doing, and it came up at the Titans event – 
is I want to have the the mastermind for multi-channel marketing. Mm. You know, there aren't really any masterminds either for offline marketing because no one wants to just do offline. And I don't know that I want to do that either. I, I could probably do a mastermind just on direct mail and print for online marketers, and they all should be looking at that. Oh, they all should. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it's multi-channel marketing. So the idea would be to bring together a lot of great offline and online people, some who are are in both camps but have great experience and great success in either one at least. And that, I think, could lead to some exponential growth uh -huh. in terms of the media that we choose going forward and then how we use the media. You know, your point about using you know, online for surveying to get into different areas of print, to figure out how to do radio to maybe get into TV, which is something that, that is, is done very often. To use, believe it or not, newspaper space advertising um, in certain categories as an entry point. And because newspapers are kind of desperate for the revenue right now. Really? I mean, things like that, yep. I think, are really exciting. Oh, they are, because there's so much potential. I mean, we, we touched on it earlier as well. Like, the Internet is efficient, but it's so ineffective. Yes. You know, and so that's where if you can test online and take it offline and do any of the things that you've been talking about. I mean, you can test audio. You can test you can test commercials on YouTube, inline streaming. You can test all that stuff. In fact, I saw a commercial on YouTube last week, and then I, it was an infomercial, and then I saw it on television like, two, uh, like a couple of days later. Later. And I was just so surprised I'd seen that, and they didn't seem to be like a big player. And I, I felt like I knew what they were doing. You know, I don't have any proof, but they just didn't seem like you know they didn't yeah. seem like Guthy Ranker. I'm like they tested that online, and then they paid for it offline. So exactly, I think there's. Exactly. I think there's a huge potential for the, and I think that in some ways, you know, you might be concerned about keeping up with the 20 year olds and, you know, it's good to keep tabs on them, but you just have so much knowledge and, and the experience. And I, I feel like you could want whatever you want to do, Brian, you know, you're such a humble guy and you downplay okay. your accomplishments so much. But when you're not in the room, people talk about you like a God in some instances, like, you know, and so you, in some ways I think need to, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to give you advice, but yeah, you know, get a pair, right? No, yeah, I, I, yeah, like, yeah, funny. exactly. I, I, Get a yeah, pair, I, I, go out there. I've taken on a mentorship role, and I, I like coaching young entrepreneurs, and I know that I'm creating a lot of value there, and it's been very rewarding. So I, I, I'm hearing what people are telling me. It's, you know, I do have to step into that. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so thank you, and that was very complimentary, and I really appreciate oh. you saying that. Um, they're actually, they're, they're, I, it, you reminded me, though, there were two, going back to the multi-channel thing, though, there were two there were two specific things. I think they're both on my site. One is a, a thing that's titled Everyone's Going Right, Time to Go Left. And it's an interview that Joe Polish, who's a great marketer, did with me. And it was about direct mail, but it wasn't about direct mail as a lead generator or as a front-end marketing tool. But it was using direct mail on the back end yeah. of online marketing. So that some of the things that you, you kind of hit home when you were talking before about online marketers as they move up in the Ascension program or into a, in a funnel where the pricing is getting high, there is still a lot of room for physical product and, and offline marketing. And that's what we kind of talked about in that interview. And then I think there was another article there, or at least I know it's on Copyblogger, and it's on my blog, right, and it was well, something like... Um, your blog, BrianKurtz.com. We've said that your website so many times. I just want to make sure... No, no, it's BrianKurtz.me, not .com. BrianKurtz, Brian Kurtz, yeah. dot me. correct? Yes, and that has all my, you know, has, has some 
articles. It has, you know, uh, an opt-in, um, free interview. It's all free. Um, and and the, the, the but the other one, there was an article I wrote. It was it was like how, you know, how paying postage made me a better direct marketer. Uh-huh. And it's not like you know I made the joke that you know just because I paid postage doesn't make me some martyr. But you know when you're paying for postage and printing and all of that. You know, what went into the sales message and what went into what we had to do before sending something in the mail, that same discipline can still be true online. What you said before about, you know, why be flippant with your messaging online just because it's cheap? Yep. So I'm, I'm a real believer in those kinds of messages. And when I've consulted with some people, you know, we've spent a lot of time on email and online messaging that is much more powerful than what they're doing even though what they're doing is working it may be working but it's 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 it, i think you use the word lazy mm. it's lazy and therefore it could be turning more people off than you want yeah. and i i say to people all the time you know if you can get your open rate you know if your open rate's 18 percent and it can get to 28 percent, and then in a weekly situation where you're delivering content when you're ready to sell something and they're opening at that, you know, moving moving that open rate by, you know, some small percentage could be game changing for so many businesses, mm-hmm. especially if they have high ticket products. So, you know, I think, you know, coming full circle, we started in lists and then we went a little bit into creative. Ignore list selection and segmentation and creative that goes with it at your own risk, even if it's cheap to send email. And if that's a big, that would be a big message I would want to you know, leave everybody with. And it's probably the thing that I'm spending the most time on working with when I, when I have consulting clients. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for all this wisdom. I've almost gone through an entire notepad of, of post-it notes. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I, yeah, please keep me in tune. I, everyone that is listening to this call needs to go and get on your list because uh, you just have phenomenal stuff. You're just of such impeccable character. And when you do want to launch that mastermind, I would st- I strongly encourage you to send me your sales letter. And again, anyone listening to this call would be well advised to get that letter as well. So once again, the website is briankurtz.me, B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R-T-Z dot me. Is there any other way for people to get in touch with you, Brian? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give an email. You know, I don't check it uh, all the time, but... You know, it's it's the one that's attached to my LinkedIn account, and if you know people had a question, I I, I do get to it. So, and I do try to respond to all my email, um, and I use uh, going back to the dinosaur. Um, <laughs> it's it's T Rex Cowboy T R E X Cowboy. Um, so I'm I'm T Rex the dinosaur and the Internet Cowboys, right? Um, and uh, T Rex Cowboy the number one at gmail dot com. T Rex Cowboy one at gmail dot com. So. You know, if people want to throw me a question or something, and I will see it, and um, I'm open to hearing from your listeners because if they're listening to you, um, I know that they're probably uh, people that I'd want to be involved with. Oh, yeah, and they're definitely people that could learn so much from you. Um, your event was definitely one that left a, a huge impression on me. One is a role model for how to host an event, how to take care of people, as well as just the caliber of people you were able to get there in the room and the speakers that were there. It was just, it was phenomenal, Brian. It was such a great way to meet you and just how you conduct yourself. And anyway, you're just, yeah, you're definitely someone that I hope to have a long-standing relationship with. And same here. Yeah. So 
thank you. In fact, you're the one that inspired me, to, you know, you because you were coaching some young entrepreneurs, and um, you were one of the, I think I told you this in an email, that you were one of the influences in that, because I, you know, you know, I'm not going to make a lot of money doing that, I mean, because most of the young entrepreneurs don't have a lot of money, but it, it's really, um, I know that I could provide so much value, because that's where my experience, I think, can help when they're just asking me business questions and about trying to make decisions, and I just wanted you to know that you uh, inspired me in that area because I know you do some of that. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm grateful for this call today for sure. I've been looking forward to it for a long time, and it was it was just as good as I had hoped. So. Oh, thanks, Doug. <laughs> You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. Uh, you're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.